Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Allison Kosick. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. Here is what you need to know. Bloomberg's bid, the billionaire prepares to enter the presidential race. Disney roars, shares soar in the pre-market after blockbuster earnings. And mind the gap, as the CEO leaves and Old Navy is spun off, is the retailer coming apart at the seams? It's Friday. This is First Move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us. We made it to Friday. Let's begin with a check of the markets. Futures at the moment are pointing to a flat to lower open for U.S. stocks as investors await more clarity on U.S.-China trade negotiations. The Dow and the S&P closing at record highs on Thursday after China said negotiators have agreed to cut tariffs as part of a trade deal. But there are conflicting reports over whether the White House is willing to cut right now. Hopes for a trade deal have been pushing bond yields higher. U.S. 10-year yields, they took their biggest jump since late 2016 on Thursday and are currently approaching 2%. That's a big change from just a few months ago when yields were plunging on fears that the U.S. was headed for a recession. We are going to have more on all of that and all the markets later, um, later in the show. But first, let's get to our drivers. As the U.S. race to the White House heats up, it looks like billionaire Michael Bloomberg will throw his hat into the ring. It's expected he'll file paperwork for Alabama's Democratic presidential primary that he could file this week. Christina Leshy joins us now with more. Good to have you, Christina. You know, correct me if I'm wrong here. Is this a surprise? Because wasn't it just in March uh, that Michael Bloomberg said he wasn't running? What changed here? That's what I reported in March, Allison. And it's not surprising that Michael Bloomberg wants to be president. What is surprising, to your point, is that he's jumping back in after saying that he was leaning against doing this. And he's jumping in so late at this juncture. Look, at the end of the day, Michael Bloomberg sees an opening because of Biden uh, struggling in the polls and Warren's rise. So he sees an area for a, a centrist Democrat uh, appealing to specifically moderate Democrats in the suburbs. And that is the person that he's going after. He has significant challenges. Resources isn't one of them because he has he's worth about $52 billion and he's willing to spend a tremendous amount of money. But, you know, there is a challenge around polling in, in the very last national poll that we got. He was uh, clocking 2%. That is not a very promising uh, number. That said, sources close to him tell me that they, you know, plan to spend, if he does move forward with this, plan to spend time and money making sure that he has a tremendous amount of name recognition. Sources close to him are also telling me, look, when Buttigieg started out, he was pretty low on the polls, too. And look and see what the progress has been made. Look at, at the progress that he's made over the last couple of months. So when you look at all that information, you know, Bloomberg, is the data guy. He made his fortune off of financial data, but he's kind of ignoring the polling data that's out there, really thinking that there is an opening politically going with his gut here 
That said, a final decision has not been made. We really have to see what happens next. The next state that has a deadline for filing to get on the ballot is New Hampshire next week. So I'll be watching to see if Bloomberg files there. What's the reaction, Christina, from the White House, from President Trump? Because many are saying, look, this could really shake things up for him, that, you know, Michael Bloomberg could really could really be a contender. Yeah, we haven't heard too much from the White House. Bottom line right now, the Bloomberg potential run would shake things up on the Democratic side. And I think the Democratic candidates are the ones who are paying most attention to this right now, especially Joe Biden. And then we've seen Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders kind of weigh in on the question of whether or not we need another billionaire entering the race, whether our elections can be bought. And they raise the question about whether or not Bloomberg is the right candidate to address the growing problem of income inequality that's really central to their platforms. So I think for the time being, Bloomberg, yes, does present a unique risk to Donald Trump, but in the near term, he presents a greater risk to the other Democrats running in the field and making it uh, essentially way more complicated for Joe Biden at this point. Yes, many saying that he poses a greater risk for Joe Biden opening the way uh, for Elizabeth Warren, something that Wall Street would not too, be too favorable about. All right, Christina Leshy, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Disney Magic is casting a spell on investors. Shares are roaring in the pre-market after Disney reported better than expected earnings, helped in part by its remake of The Lion King. Frank Pallotta has the details on all of this. Frank, I want to get to The Lion King at the end because I want to get your opinion. But first, let's talk business. Uh, we've got just days to go before the streaming service lifts off. You think there's no risk here, but there's a risk here for Disney+. Plus. There's a risk here for CEO Bob Iger, isn't there? Yes, there is. I mean, if you think back, this company was founded in 1923. So over the last 96 years, it's made its money off of theme park rides, uh, TV shows, movies, Mickey Mouse plush dolls, or Buzz Lightyear action figures, whatever you want to buy. Now it's going into a whole new segment with streaming. This is a completely new area. Now, can Disney succeed? Yes, it is primed to succeed. Disney Plus has a low price at $6.99 and a treasure trove of deep content from their vault, from Marvel to Mickey Mouse to uh, Star Wars. But what's important here is also this is a huge risk, not just for Disney, the company, but for Bob Iger, the leader of the company himself. He's going to be stepping down. He at least he says he's going to in 2021. And this might be the last great undertaking and possibly the biggest bet he takes on the way out. Walk me through, Frank, why it's a big deal that Amazon and Disney partnered up. What's most interesting here is that we've been talking about the streaming war. And if you don't know what the streaming wars are, that's all these different companies, both tech giants and legacy companies, legacy media companies coming together from Netflix to uh, Apple to Disney to NBC Universal to CNN's parent company, Warner Media, all battling it out. Amazon is one of those companies, and they kind of are showing that they can be a partner with another competitor to help both grow. Last night, Bob Iger was on CNBC, and he was talking to Julia Borstein, and she said to him, so it's kind of like you guys are frenemies. And he said, yes, that's one way to put it. So it looks like even in streaming wars, there can be some friendships between competitors. Okay, take out your crystal ball here. What do you see as the future of Disney with Disney Plus? I think Disney, I think Disney's going to really be able to dominate this field, but they're going to have to find out what happens to their big money makers going forward. What, what I mean by that is studio entertainment, a.k.a. their movies and media networks, a.k.a. linear television, because if the bigger that streaming gets, 
the more questions and possibly the more cannibalization of those big, big decade long money makers is going to occur. So we're going to have to see where Disney goes from here. I think they can be successful, but it could be a bumpy road for what Disney was to what Disney will have to become. But Wall Street seems to be pretty happy with Disney. A hundred percent. I mean, as you said, six percent this morning, five percent in after hours last night. I think Disney is a real bullish case for Wall Street comparatively to, say, a competitor like Netflix, obviously the king of streaming, who has had some bumpy roads these last couple months with subscribers. Their U.S. subscribers have kind of leveled out and they have some challenges internationally. But Disney is primed to really kick this off four days from now with Disney Plus. You got to remember in 2017, they announced that they were going to pull all their content from Netflix, thus starting the streaming wars as we know it today. So we're going to really see where it's going to go from there. Very quick, did you like the original Lion King or the, or the latest one? I like the original Lion King, but I am not so against the new Lion <laughs> King. It's beautiful to look at, but I'm an animation guy, hand-drawn all day. I am with you. Frank Pallotta, thanks so much. All right, first Facebook, now Google, the social media giant, is in the firing line over political ads, and its rivals change the practices to try to stay ahead of the storm. Tony O'Sullivan is joining me live now. It's great to have you on because there's so much going on uh, with Google, with Facebook, with their, with, their, with, their, you know, with their common practices. What is Google doing specifically? What changes is it making to calm its critics? Alison, Google, which of course owns YouTube, has done a remarkable job at staying under the radar here. We've heard over the past month so many people complain about Facebook's ad policy where they allow politicians to run false ads. We've heard from Congress, from Democratic presidential candidates, from commentators in the media. YouTube and Google essentially has the same policy. They are allowing candidates, they, they allowed the Trump campaign to run a false ad about Joe Biden. Now, the Wall Street Journal reports that internally at Google, even though the company has said nothing publicly, there is some discussions that they might change some of their policies. What they might change, we have no idea. But it is quite interesting to see, you know, you think the three major titans in Silicon Valley, Google, which owns YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. Facebook have remained, you know, committed to their policy of saying we don't believe we should be fact checking politicians. Twitter said last week, Jack Dorsey announced, you know what, we're getting out of this game entirely. We're not allowing any politicians run ads on our platform from mid-November. And Google stayed, uh, has, has stayed so far silent. Are there any changes that Facebook could make to calm its critics, even though the company appears committed to its most controversial policy in this area? Of course, what you just said, allowing politicians to run false ads. That's right, Alison. So we heard from a source uh, yesterday that Facebook is considering making some changes to its policies, but not to the its its main controversial policy, which is fact checking. So what they are thinking of doing is creating uh, making it clearer that posts when they're an ad that it's clear that it is actually an ad. Perhaps providing more information on who paid for the ad, and also perhaps most importantly, potentially restricting how ads can be targeted on the platform. That's the real value of Facebook in terms of you know why it's a multi-billion-dollar company. You can really specifically target ads at, at specific groups of people, in this case voters. There's been concern, some concern raised, including internally at Facebook, that that could be a problem of, of sending, you know, one specific set of messages to one group of voters and a different to the other. So if, if they did decide to cut down back in the micro-targeting, that would be a significant uh, action. Okay, Donia Sullivan, thanks so much for your analysis. 
are the stories making headlines around the world. On Saturday, Germany marks 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was the most visible symbol of the Iron Curtain between Western and Eastern Europe. It was built by the German Democratic Republic starting in 1961. More than 1,000 firefighters are trying to contain brush fires across the Australian state of New South Wales. The local fire service calling it an unprecedented situation, close to 100 fires and more than half of them out of control. Officials are saying lives are at risk and people living in the area should get out if they still can. Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney will not be testifying before impeachment investigators this morning, adding to the list of White House officials who have defied subpoenas for testimony. Nevertheless, House Democrats, they continue to plow ahead with all signs indicating President Trump could be impeached as soon as next month. Suzanne Malveaux joins me live now. The timetable is certainly uh, becoming of the essence, isn't it? Well, they are very confident that they can move this along rather quickly, actually. Um, I mean, next week marks a dramatically different phase of the investigation. That is with public testimony of various witnesses. But they believe that they don't have to call a lot of people to make the case that they have a tight, coherent story here outlining what they believe is quid pro quo for the president uh, holding up the aid in return for political favors. Uh, it is interesting, however, uh, Mick Mulvaney, what he would have provided to House Democrats so that they're downplaying it a little bit here. He is the one who famously said just last month at a press conference that it happens all the time when someone had asked him about quid pro quo and he said get over it. He then denied those comments that he made just an hour later. Um, but what they would have liked to have asked him is, was he ordered by the president to delay this aid or was this something that he had done on his own? Uh, there are some Republican lawmakers who are floating this idea, uh, this uh, theory, if you will, that the president really wasn't the one directing this, that uh, he has some distance from some of the other players involved uh, regarding uh, Ambassador Sunlin, uh, his chief of staff Mulvaney, and his attorney Rudy Giuliani and what they were doing regarding Ukraine. Uh, it is not something that uh, people are really buying here on Capitol Hill for the most part. We've been hearing from Democrats who say, well, all you have to do is just take a look at the transcript of the phone call with the president, uh, President Trump and the Ukrainian president in which he directs him to talk to Rudy, as in Rudy Giuliani, that he did, in fact, play a central role in this. All right, Allison. Suzanne Mavo, live for us from Capitol Hill with all the latest on uh, the impeachment investigation. Thanks so much. Coming up on First Move, Gap's stock is down and the CEO is out. We have the latest details. And later, billionaires may be under fire on the Democratic campaign trail, but a new report shows the mega-rich are boosting business. All that later in the program. Welcome back to First Move. We are live at the New York Stock Exchange, where it's still looking like a mostly flat open for U.S. stocks. The Dow and the S&P finishing at all-time highs in Thursday's session. And all the major averages are set to finish the week with gains. That said, investors are clearly hoping for more clarity on trade over the next few days. There are conflicting reports over 
whether the White House is on board with cutting tariffs as part of the ongoing U.S.-China negotiations. Another big trade deadline is on tap for next week. President Trump must decide by Wednesday whether to slap tariffs on European auto imports. Meantime, Gap's stock is plunging in pre-market trading. The retailer announcing its longtime CEO is stepping down before the spinoff of its budget line, Old Navy. Claire Sebastian is on this one and joins me live. Good morning, Claire. So what happened here? Because Art Peck was expected to stay on through uh, the spinoff of Old Navy. What happened here? Well, Alison, I think it's interesting to note that at the same time as announcing his departure, the company has also issued a profit warning for the third quarter and, and uh, reduced their guidance for the full year. They now say they expect comparable sales, which are in stores uh, that are already open uh, for a year. They expect those to be down 4% versus flat in the same period last year. And particularly interesting to note that they expect a decline of 4% in Old Navy star, uh, stores. They were up 4% in the same period last year. So I think people are looking at this. He was, as you say, supposed to stay on through the spin-off, which was supposed to happen next year, and, and questioning whether this might be the company re-evaluating its options here. The, the spin-off, the thesis behind that was, that was that Old Navy is the strongest part of the company. It's, it's shown consistent sales growth, growth under, old, old, uh, under Art Peck, where the other parts, the other brands have faltered. Uh, but is that still happening? If you look at the, the numbers from this quarter, I think there is some doubt around that. Is the thinking a gap that maybe they can get back on their feet with a new leader because they, they've clearly fallen so behind? Well, I think the, the thinking is probably that they haven't gone, got back under their feet, uh, on their feet under this current leader. If you look at the share price since he took over in February of 2015, it has more than halved in value. Art Peck was supposed to be the man who was going to bring Gap uh, into the digital age, but, but it's continued to falter. Uh, and part of that is because of its presence in malls. It continues to be one of the biggest mall tenants in the U.S. Uh, part of that is because it hasn't been able to appeal to a younger customer. It hasn't been able to bring its, its e-commerce offerings uh, up against the competition. Uh, and I think really they're looking at, at bringing in, in a new person who can really bring this turnaround uh, to bear. But as of, as of now, they don't have a permanent CEO. Robert Fisher, who is the son of the, the founders and, and, and non-executive chairman on the board, he is going to step in actually for the second time. He's done this before in 2007. So right now we have a bit of a, a leadership vacuum at, at Gap. And I think that's one of the reasons why, why you see the share price down today. Yes, I, I think that's not all that Gap is lacking, unfortunately, not just its leadership. All right, Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. And the Gap and other major retailers begin reporting third quarter earnings later this month. Earnings season has been mixed so far, but investors hope profits will strengthen if the U.S. and China reach a trade deal. Tom Bercelli joins me now live, uh, joins me here with his take on the economy and the markets. He is the chief U.S. economist at, R at RBC Capital Markets. Hi. He walked here in the cold to make it to talk about the markets <laughs> with me. It was a little cold, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> So we are watching the markets kind of come off this euphoria uh, with this sort of phase one with U.S.-China, yeah. uh, a U.S.-China trade deal. And the reasons here are, are not so clear, though. But we have seen the market really rally on this. Is it setting itself up for failure because nothing, the details really aren't out? Yeah, so what I, I would say it this way. I think a, a fair sort of blanket statement, which I'm sort of loath to do generally, but I think it's fair to say uh, if, you know, this thing crumbled, uh, you know, if all of a sudden phase one got kicked um, down the road to some other point, sort of, you know, call it early next year, uh, I think the market would act uh, very harshly to, to that news. But it, it, we, we don't get any sense.
that we're going down that path. You even had Peter Navarro, um, who's one of the bigger trade hawks within the administration, come out today and say, yeah, you know, it looks like we can basically exclude the, the December 15th tariffs, uh, assuming a deal is signed. So for, for even him to say that, I, I think that uh, it seems like we are moving in sort of the right direction. Do you think at this point the market is depending on uh, the Fed's monetary juice rather than the fundamentals of the, of the economy as the path to gains? Yeah, What's your opinion on I, I love this question. So I think that it's it's what's happened in the market over the course of the last year, maybe even a little bit more than that at this point, um, it, it, it is entirely a function of trade policy. Uh, it just was never a monetary policy problem, right? Like there was nothing that the Fed could have done in terms of cutting rates that would have sort of re uh, you know, restarted uh, CapEx or, you know, capital expenditures uh, um, spending. So no, this is not a monetary policy problem. The, the Fed cut rates 75 basis points, and I promise you that that is not gonna show up in any material way from, a, from an economic perspective. What will show up is if you can remove trade from the table, if you can get some positive resolution, I think that allows sort of positive sentiment to, to, to kick in, because that has been the problem. It's an entirely a function of poor sentiment um, that has been sort of driving uh, um, sort of the, the CapEx space in particular. Okay, so let's just say for argument's sake that a trade deal does yeah. happen, whether it's a mini deal or a big deal. Yep. What is the next catalyst for Wall Street? So, and, and, and again, another good question. Um, so, I think that if you think about sort of how the year is going to unfold in the coming year, the coming year is very easy to make the case that you're going to have a really rock solid economic um, backdrop. Consumer remains in really good shape. If you can get trade off the table to get CapEx to kick in, you can actually have another economic sector that is actually able to provide a little bit of juice from an economic perspective. So I think what people are going to want to really start to focus on is, you know, sort of the consumer fundamentals. How good or weak are they? And we, of course, think that they remain really sound. And I think that'll be enough to have another good year in 2020, from a, whether it's from an economic perspective or from a market's perspective. Then why the disconnect in earnings? I mean, we're in another earnings. Yeah. Um we're in an earnings recession, literally, and another another earnings contraction is expected. Yeah. The yeah. next season. So why this disconnect as we see the markets move to record highs? So I don't think earnings are actually all that bad. Um, actually, earnings have actually been performing a little bit better, I think, right. than than what um, uh, uh, you know you would have suggested there. Um, so I think what, what we have to keep in mind is there have been pockets of weakness. There's no question about that. You know, anything tied to sort of the the um, the, the, the trade space, manufacturing is a great example uh, of a sector that has uh, been performing pretty poorly. But generally speaking, earnings have been okay on on balance. The bar was separately. No. Without question. <laughs> Let's talk about bond yields very quickly. They're moving higher, 10-year yield, yields. They're flat today, but they did hit a three-month high on Thursday. It's a big change from a few months ago. Yeah. What is the bond market telling us? So it's been very interesting, the, the lift that we've seen from a bond market perspective. I think the bond market uh, in yields, uh, I think the bond market was very fearful of the, this, this, this trade war going down a really bad path, an even worse path than what we've already seen. And so now I think what the bond market is effectively saying is it looks like there is some resolution um, uh, at our doorstep. And so that has allowed yields to lift. I think yields can continue to uh, drift higher. Um, you can easily uh, get north of 2% over the coming uh, um, several weeks. And I think even stay there, again, as long as we can get some resolution from a trade perspective. You're very positive, but we can't we yeah. can't just ignore that we have we had some downbeat data. Um, sure. Manufacturing. Um, ISM. Yeah. The jobs numbers are expected to move yep. uh, to worsen. Uh, is that something we just sort of turn our turn our backs to? No, no, not at all. Uh, in fact, I think in fact, if we if we keep straight in front, what we'd actually realize is that data is actually not that bad. <laughs> yes, ISM has actually been performing pretty poorly. But what's interesting is 
this is obviously a measure of sentiment. And if you look at other regional sentiment manufacturing indicators, they haven't performed nearly as poorly as ISM. I mean, there's, so there's a schism between ISM and the regional data, which are actually holding up a little better. Um, job data are actually performing incredibly well. I think, in fact, much better than expectations. So uh, you're, you're looking at 150 to 175,000 jobs over the balance of the, uh, of the last year or so. That's enough to continue to propel consumption. All right, Tom Bertelli, thanks so much for your analysis. And uh, our thanks to you. And we'll be back right after the opening bell. First move, I'm Allison Kosick. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. And that was the opening bell, as expected. We have got a flat to lower open uh, for U.S. shares as we wrap up the first full week of trading for November. Stocks remain close to record levels, though, as traders await clarity on the U.S.-China trade negotiations. And trade concerns could soon trigger fresh stimulus in Japan. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is asking his cabinet to draw up a fresh stimulus bill that includes funds for major infrastructure projects. It would be that country's first stimulus measure in three years. Time now for a look at the global movers. Shares of the gap are falling in early trading. As we just mentioned, the retailing giant's CEO is stepping down after almost four years at the helm. The company continues to suffer from slowing sales. It's issuing a third quarter sales warning and cutting its guidance for the rest of the year. Shares of Zillow are moving higher on online real estate. The online real estate platform is reporting better than expected third quarter revenues. Sales soared more than 100% during the period. Zillow says its so-called home flipping business is doing especially well. Shares of Alibaba are advancing. Reports say it will launch its long-awaited Hong Kong share offering later this month. Disney shares are higher, too. The entertainment giant is reporting stronger-than-expected earnings and revenues. The results come just days before the launch of its new streaming service, Disney+. Plus. One cause for concern here, weakening results at Hong Kong Disneyland. Attendance has been hurt by the ongoing pro-democracy protest there. Okay, let's dig a little deeper into those Disney numbers. In the three months that ended in September, parks and movie studios delivered strong operating profits. There was a small dip in the media division, though. The cost of launching Disney Plus took the operating losses to $740 million, although that was less than analysts had expected. Nate Fisher is the chief investment strategist at Strategic Wealth Partners, and his company owns Disney shares. So glad to have you with us. Good morning. Good morning. So we saw Disney's profits jump, but so did its expenses. I understand that you've got to spend money to make money, but at what point does that spread become worrisome for the company and for investors? I don't think it's really worrisome right now. Every, everything's hinging on Disney Plus launch, as you mentioned, next week, and then they're going to launch two weeks out in Australia and New Zealand, and then come March of 2020, the rollout in Europe. So as you mentioned, you have to spend the money up front to get the platform up and running. At the end of the day, content's king, and Disney has 70 years of content that they're ready to put on this platform and see if the investors or the user appetite is there to, to watch the programming. Oh, no doubt it's the content that's going to draw those members in. I agree with you there. Uh, but we did listen to CEO Bob Iger focus a lot on Hulu uh, on the conference call as part of, of Disney's overall strategy to kind of pounce on Netflix. 
what has to what has to be done here to succeed? Uh, you know, to, to kind of succeed or to 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 win those members away from Netflix and really really make a difference here. So, so I think the three prong approach that Disney is going to be using with with the bundling at thirteen dollars price point with Hulu, uh, ESPN Plus, and now Disney Plus is very competitive with. Disney's offering, which is $13 for their basic subscription, right? So you're not only playing into the, the sports enthusiasts uh, with ESPN Plus, you're playing into the family, the adult, and the, and the child content with Disney Plus. And then in Hulu, you're getting the aggregator, which essentially, if you go up to the, the basic and TV, you get live TV, and you're getting, you know, other content from uh, other networks as well that's going to aggregate on there. So that is a very compelling uh, proposition for anybody looking to cut the cord. All right, so from Hulu to Marvel, the companies that Disney is, uh, is over, the pressure really is on on these other companies to create content that's going to bring in new members, that's going to draw in these new members, you know, talking about productions like movies and series and shows, and bring these shows and movies straight to streaming. Um, content-wise from these companies and the pressures that are on them. Talk to me about that. So obviously Netflix has a lot of headwinds from a cash burn perspective to, to generate content, to essentially acquire the talent to create the content. This is Disney's wheelhouse, right? They own studios. They have a deep talent bench of creative people, and they're really good at making content across different genres. So for for a deep-pocketed competitor like Disney, there's a lot of advantages on their side to continue to roll out new content, originals, movies, and push that through their streaming platform. So all eyes will be on how they execute the streaming platform, and the stock potentially will re-rate higher if there's positive data points about subscriptions getting on the Disney Plus platform. Right now, management's looking at anywhere from 60 to 90 million subscriptions over the next three years, and that's probably conservative given the fact that they have a partnership with Disney, which should allow them, or not Disney, but Verizon, to allow them to enter about 20 million U.S. households in the next 12 months. So there's definitely a lot of people just looking to see the data points on Disney+. Plus. I don't think anybody's worried about content from their standpoint. That puts, as you mentioned, a lot of pressure on other people trying to generate content to compete. Okay, Hong Kong's political crisis is certainly impacting Disney, specifically at Disneyland there, but not just last quarter with operational, uh, with operating income falling, but predictions for that income drop to actually accelerate in the coming quarters. What do you think Disney can do to mitigate this impact? So, so the Hong Kong thing is one very off thing. It's still not as meaningful as Disney World and Disneyland in the U.S. The parks are doing fine. Attendance is strong. Uh, they're raising ticket prices. Uh, but the, on the call, management mentioned there might be a little bit de deferral from visitation as, as they ramp up the next exhibit of the Star Wars phase, and that's going to happen over the next couple months. So people, people probably wait, and once all, both exhibits are open, then the floodgates probably open. So I'm not worried about the Hong Kong in particular. It sounded like Paris was doing well. Um, so the parks in general are, are fine in my view. Okay, Nathan Fisher of Strategic Wealth Partners. So great talking with you today. Thank you. All right, up next, an e-cigarette crackdown. In China, there are calls for a public vaping ban, even though the industry is worth billions and growing fast.
say the number of vaping-related deaths in the U.S. has risen to 39, with two more reported in the past week. The government is scrambling to clamp down on the industry and is trying to take flavored e-cigarettes off the market. But China is going a step further. Beijing is calling for a ban on vaping in public and has already prohibited the selling and advertising of e-cigarettes online. David Culver joins me, joins me live now from Beijing. Good morning. Allison, good morning to you. This can't be understated. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry here, e-cigarettes. To fully understand the impact, though, we needed to head south to Shenzhen. That's the city that dominates e-cigarette making here in China and really provides much of the global supply. It's there we were able to get a feel for how these growing health concerns are impacting and really hurting business. But it's there we also got their take on government regulations. And that may surprise you. In a city often called the Silicon Valley of China, Shenzhen is now widely viewed as a global hub for e-cigarette makers, an industry that in recent years has grown rapidly with few boundaries. But that is changing. Okay, uh, for example, this, this is one uh, samples from the customer. Inside this sleek high-tech laboratory, chemists are testing the oils and materials used in e-cigarettes, determining the level of nicotine advertised versus what's really in the product. Local manufacturers send their e-cigarettes to this private lab to be dissected. Have you had to tell some of the companies before mm -hmm. your product is not meeting the standards right now? Sure. You need to change it? Sure. The business is called Shenzhen Bless Electronic Technology. They tell us they have contracts with more than two dozen Chinese e-cigarette makers. Product manager Wang Shengfu sees their role as enhancing the standards of the e-cigarettes coming out of China. There are some small factories with poor production standards in this industry. They also hope to make money from this huge market. But our company is always sticking to guarantee the safety and health of our products. China is home to the world's leading manufacturers of e-cigarettes. Taishin, a prominent financial publication, says in 2018, Chinese vaping-related sales reached 4.8 billion U.S. dollars, adding that 85% of the vaping products end up as exports, most to the U.S., or at least they did. In September, amid growing health concerns over the impact of vaping, Trump administration officials said they plan to strip all flavored e-cigarettes from the market, hoping it will help curb vaping, particularly among young people. China going further. Last week, Beijing urged a halt to e-cigarette sales on e-commerce websites and prohibited e-cigarette ads from going online. The moves impacting the estimated 1,000 vaping-related businesses here in Shenzhen. Are you still confident, Mark, that what you're making here is safe and healthy? Yes, we are safe. Mark Lee showed us his factory. It was clean, orderly, and appeared to be focused on quality control. Lee's team testing each e-cigarette before allowing them to leave the plant. While he stands by his product, he hopes U.S. health officials' studies will confirm that his products are safe. His business depends on it. To give you an idea just how significant the U.S. market is to factories like this one here in China, when vaping concerns hit the headlines in September, their sales plummeted some 70%. They went from 300 employees down to just 40. 
It is widely advocates for Chinese government intervention, hoping it will weed out harmful products that he says are giving the rest a bad name. And he supports Bless's efforts to create an industry standard in China. For its part, Bless says they're taking a leading role in creating regulations. We have participated in drafting the standard, and we believe the government will issue the national standard soon. The absence of any e-cigarette national standard in China has not stopped them from enjoying the products they've tested. Wang confident the smoke will clear and the industry will thrive once again. Shortly after we interviewed Mark Lee, that one manufacturer, Allison, he messaged me to say that he had these grand plans for a second facility. He has now scrapped those plans because business simply is not strong enough. A lot of the manufacturers here in China are now turning away from the U.S. market because that seems to be no longer viable. And they're turning to hopefully market in their minds domestically. We'll see how that goes. Regulations, meantime, here could come out any day now. Exactly. Yeah, federal regulations are expected here on electronic cigarette flavors within days. Uh, so we are seeing uh, the beginnings of a crackdown. David Culver, thanks so much for that great reporting. Saturday marks 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall, and for decades it stood as the most visible symbol of the Iron Curtain between Western and Eastern Europe. Many people died trying to escape from communist East Germany. CNN's Frederick Pleiken met up with one man who made it across. The line of demarcation in the Cold War lies in Berlin. For 28 years, the Berlin Wall symbolized the struggle between capitalism and communism and the cruel division between the people of East and West Berlin. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So here at CNN, we actually own our own CNN Trabant. This was the epitome of communist East German automotive engineering. And for the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, what we're going to do is we're going to take this car and take a drive back into history. That is, if I fit into the car. Because it's small and I'm big. Oh. Ready to go. The remnants of the wall are a tourist attraction nowadays, but this deadly barrier with border guards, observation towers, and barbed wire struck fear into the Berliners it divided. I stop and pick up Peter Bieber, who grew up in Hello, East Germany despising the communist real. regime and the wall it needed to keep people from fleeing into the West. You look... Uh and saw uh, the wall. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's end. Yeah. It's end of the world. Uh, you can go where you want. As a young man, Peter Bieber attempted to flee East Germany several times until he finally succeeded in 1972. He then helped others get out as well until he was betrayed and arrested by East Germany's secret police, the Stasi, and spent five years in jail there. It was uh, a, um, a little uh, stark psychoterror. Psychological terror. Yeah. Uh, uh, we, I sit in a little room, uh, not so feel light, and uh, one month, two months, and nobody uh, uh, came and, uh, and said anything. The West German government eventually paid East Germany to release Peter Bieber, but many others who tried to get away paid with their lives. More than 100 of them in Berlin. 
In 1989, East Germans had had enough. After a wave of mass protests, the regime opened the wall, leading to mass celebrations as people from all over the world joined in to literally tear down the wall. I think about the freedom, that's for me, the highest, the highest point. The highest good, good. Yeah. Yeah. the highest good that highest people good can have this, is yeah. freedom. Yeah. Thirty years later, a united Berlin is thriving, having shed the shackles of communism and dismantled the wall many thought could never be breached. Fred Plekin, CNN, Berlin. Coming up on First Move, a blip for billionaires as their wealth takes a dip. We'll tell you why you shouldn't feel too bad for them after this break. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick, and love them or loathe them, you can't turn on the news lately without bumping into a, mil a billionaire. We just found out one of America's richest, Michael Bloomberg, is preparing a run to oust fellow billionaire Donald Trump. While some Democrats on the campaign trail are promising to tax the billionaire class to pay for social programs. Well, there's a new report out looking at how they fare in business. A UBS study says companies headed by billionaires perform better on the stock market. For more on this, John Matthews joins me right here live. He's the head of Ultra High Net Worth Americas at UBS Global Wealth Management. And as I was saying, talking about billionaires, one of my favorite subjects, you know, a girl can dream, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so give me a quick and dirty about the billionaire report, some of the, the highlights that stand out for you. Yeah, Allison, thanks. And by the way, this, this report's written about billionaires, but it's not really written for billionaires. This is for all of us to learn what incredible wealth creators have done over time. And so we can really learn from billionaires. Uh, first of all, bi the billionaire, actually wealth and number of billionaires declined in 2018 after a five-year incredible trajectory. So actually a decline in everywhere in the world except for the United States. So I, once again, the U.S. economy proved to be incredibly resilient. We added wealth and another 33 additional billionaires in the Americas just in 2018. Okay, so. well, th those are amazing statistics. So, so let me let me jump to politics very quickly. Michael Bloomberg looks like he's going to jump into the, the presidential race. Is he, would you think that he would be seen as more of a villain, a villain or a savior uh, for the Democrats? Well, it's hard for me to, you know, I don't really comment on po politics. You know, we have clients that half our clients are probably on one side and the other half on the other side. But what I can say, uh, is when you look at this this wealth creation through billionaires, they've done it through both parties, right? It's been like in a 30-year wave, both Democrats and Republicans. So I don't think it really matters who's at the top in terms of wealth creation for billionaires. And you, t you talked to me about this during the break, that most billionaires actually are self-made, that they didn't just come from money. So knowing that, what, how do you feel, maybe some of your clients feel about Elizabeth Warren kind of beating up on billionaires? How fair is that? I mean, look, they are living the American dream, the very thing that Americans want to live, and she is stumping all over that. Yeah, once again, we, we care about our clients, and uh, we try not to get in those conversations. But if you look at some of the, not only the wealth creation, the trickle-down effect that billionaires have, uh, the report last year showed that they employ over 29 million people around the world. So there's a trickle down in wealth, job creation, but most importantly, philanthropy. Uh, 204 of billionaire families have already signed on to the giving pledge, which means they've signed on to give away half 
of their net worth over time to philanthropy. So there's some good, can't speak for all of them, but there's a lot of good out there as well. And average investors can make some money if they just look at what billionaires are doing, especially in the stock market. Explain what you found. The, the billionaire effect, we went back over, over the last five years, we've discovered that billionaire run and founded companies seem to be performing better. So we went back over a 15 year time period and it's almost a double the return from public markets measured against the MCI all cap world index, 17.8% to 9.1%, almost a double. So then we dug down deeper and said, what are the characteristics and why? Three really quick ones. They are incredibly risk takers. They will take risks. They're all in. They're determined to win. Uh, they will search the globe for opportunity. So globalization has been really good for billionaires. And finally, they are very long-term focused. I had dinner with a billionaire client of ours uh, just last week, and I said, tell me the secret of your success. And he said, I don't measure our success in quarters. I measure our success in 100 years. So, so long-term focus. Is this a lesson to U.S. investors to follow where billionaires go, where they invest their money? I think it could be. I mean, I think, listen, it's a good path to see how wealth's being created over a long period of time. The average billionaire is 67 years old. So these aren't people that wake up one morning and they invent something. Doesn't overnight, folks. Yeah, it's a long-term thing. All right, John Matthews, it's been fabulous talking Great with you about you one of my favorite topics, billionaires. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, and that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick and you've been watching First Move, CNN Newsroom. That's up after the break. Have a great weekend, everybody. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.